should be saying this to your cameras, Gabe. Where are your cameras? Oh, there is no camera. This is an audio podcast. I showered for this. I don't understand. This has just been an audio recording. I would have used my Scarlett Johansson sexy voice. I consider Woody Allen a very dear friend. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, your source for mostly civil discussions about theology, philosophy, literature, and other things that human beings do well. Join us each week for our conversations and visit our website at christianhumanist.org, where you can email us, read our blog, and order merchandise paying homage to the most important Christian thinkers of the past two millennia. And now, the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Thanks for downloading another award-winning episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, This is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs. And joining me online this fine afternoon is David Grubbs, graduate student and teaching assistant at University of Georgia. David, I never know where in Athens you are, so how are you doing? I'm good, and I'm uh, I'm actually op- occupying my wife's office right now, or at least All right. her, her okay. temporary office, which is also the place where they store the Emma servers. Which you know, if you've had any uh, composition class at UGA, you know what Emma is. If you haven't, you don't. But if you haven't, anyway. you're probably imagining them kidnapping a bunch of uh, un- uh, undergraduate coeds. <laughs> <laughs> Also online is Michael Farmer, live from Christian Humanist Headquarters in Tallahassee, Florida. He's an adjunct instructor of developmental writing and developmental reading. Michael, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing well, but I got word today that it's just going to be developmental writing my reading class didn't make. So that's more time to work on a podcast and my dissertation. Right. Unless you're someone who's looking to hire me, in which case, it's more time to work on my podcast and my dissertation, (laughs) (laughs) which I could not be more excited about. That's right. Well, at any rate, uh, it's been a while since the three of us have done a podcast together. Michael, of course, did a .01 episode over the Christmas break on the top music of 2010. Uh, Usually, Michael, when I listen to a .1 episode, I'm thinking, boy, I wish I could jump in on this, but... uh, I listened to that episode and I said I would have nothing to say. So what is this garbage? <laughs> no, I just had no <laughs> idea what any of it was. So uh, I'm glad that you well, did uh, it because uh, I certainly my didn't. wife and I. I got I got to say, Michael, when uh, when Katie and I were listening to it, we actually got to the point where we were stopping the songs halfway and skipping to the next point just to hear what you were going to say about the next thing. That was that was actually for me the most entertaining part of it. Oh it's, it's, wow! I I feel so embarrassed you know, about it. like like there's things when you when you write about music it, it, there's things that sound good when you write them on paper, but then you have to say them out loud and it makes you sound really doofy and pretentious and that's how I feel about that <laughs> podcast. I feel like the music was the best thing about it. <laughs> well, uh, as you listeners know, you can find us also online at christianhumanist.org/chb, and lately on the blog there have been some Bible posts. Uh, there have been some sort of business posts where we've announced things. And among those things, of course, was that we were put on a list of top philosophy, blo- uh, po- pardon me, philosophy podcasts by Guide to Online Schools. Uh, you can see the little badge that we won at the bottom of our website. Uh, so as Michael said in one of the comments on the blog, uh, considering how many atheist podcasts were on that list, uh, it's pretty notable that we're there among them. 
Yeah, I'm pretty pleased about it. I've never heard of the organization that hands out the uh, awards, but I'll take it. Thank you. Sure, sure. Well, this podcast... It's a blue ribbon, so, you know, that's cool. There you go. Well, this podcast arises, at least in part, out of an exchange that we had with the Christianity and Western Culture podcast last semester, last season, in our particular vocabulary. Uh, They made the move, a regrettable move in my view, of skipping (laughs) the Renaissance in their coverage of Christianity and Western culture. An attack. Instead, what now? An attack more than a move. A slap in the face. It it was an attack of sorts, but I made the promise not long after they made that affront uh, that this season on the Christian Humanist podcast, there would be one dedicated to the Italian Renaissance. And so here we are. Uh, We are going to spend about an hour, give or take, talking about this very, very important moment in the history of Christianity (laughs) and Western culture. And those of you who are coming over here from CWC listening to this, perhaps you can slot us into last season where there should have been a Renaissance podcast and enjoy it nonetheless. Now, are we going to relate the Italian Renaissance back to New Mexico and giant glasses of soda? No, we are not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let them let them do that work <laughs> important though it is well at any rate let's go let's go ahead and leap into this since we're all three literature teachers of some sort let's start with two great poets who signal the coming of new things in the culture of the former roman west and i'm talking about dante on one hand and petrarch on the other hand mm. now dante's newfound love for the original text of roman poets especially virgil And Petrarch's platonizing of his romantic attraction to Laura signal two great trends that will come to define this period that we call the Renaissance. Uh, David, if you would, I mean, talk for a few moments about each of these poets. Talk about the change that each represents in the literary culture of Central and Southern Europe. And say what you will about either of them. Okay. Um I kind of, I kind of took uh, t- took your lead in 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 the way that you asked the question because if 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 you say talk for a few minutes about Dante and Petrarch, um, well yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Nathan's Nathan's show notes always look like uh, prompts for comprehensive exams. <laughs> yeah, that's what that reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> but at, at, at any rate, I'm all, I'm always grateful for it because I, I I I get a sense of ah okay yeah that's 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 my route into the topic, um, namely the 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 relationship in the Renaissance, uh, between, you know the the culture that they had in that moment, um, uh, and and the these uh, cultural progenitors that they were looking back towards. Um, you know the the classical, the the Greeks and and uh, the Latin uh, writers that they were looking back to for for patterns of uh, of literary genre, of uh, patterns of story and character and uh, ideas, ideologies, philosophy, and so forth. Um, in Virgil, I think you see that uh, you see that best um, in in my exposure to him in the well especially the inferno which you can't swing a dead cat in dante's inferno without hitting something from uh roman literature especially um uh, particularly uh 
references to uh, references to the Aeneid crop up, um, and the author of the Aeneid, uh, Virgil, is is Dante's guide through the Inferno. Um, so that there was a way in the Middle Ages in which the the Christian culture of Europe came to terms with the classical culture. There were ways that they handled classical myths, um, particularly through allegory or by euhemerizing them and turning them into histories. Um, I think Virgil helps us see the way uh, the re the Renaissance, uh, the Italian Renaissance, undertook that project differently. Um, in that he doesn't try to uh, either he doesn't try to Christianize what the uh, what the pagan writers did by turning them into allegories of Christian virtues, nor does he try to um, kind of ignore that they were pagans. Um, Virgil is still occupying a place in, in in the Inferno, but it's a I guess as as far as Inferno goes, it's a place of honor. So the wise pagan philosophers and poets um, are in are in limbo, which is not it's not a good place like heaven, but it's not a place of uh, of at least active pain um, being inflicted on these people. The pain that they feel is the pain of of the unrequited longing that they have uh, for for the beauty and the goodness. Uh, and the ultimate truth, which the saints experience in heaven, but um, yeah, the, these these wise pagans, uh, they they still feel the feel the longing for the good and the true and the beautiful, um, right. and that's what causes them pain in limbo. Right, and notably in limbo, there is not cries and there is not screaming, but there are sighs. Yes, there are sighs. Um, so I I, I I think it's good to to look at particularly at that scene. Um, to see, you know, kind of how, how does at least Dante's Renaissance integration of of the Christianity of his time with the the role of their classical heritage? How does he merge those two? And it's it's in this kind of recognizing that those pagans, um, the the you know the pagan classic thinkers, um, they aren't Christ they aren't crypto Christians. But at the same time, you know, we should we should value them for uh, the true things and the beautiful things that they did say. Um, and I, 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 I like that. So and that's very much in the spirit of Christian humanism. It's I mean, really what what the people who would be known as the Christian humanists in that era, Erasmus and whoever, um, that's that's the attitude they took toward all that uh all that pagan pagan antiquity is let's let's rate it for Egyptian gold, right, right, and also notably uh, in a biography of Dante that I read once, he actually taught himself classical Latin so that he could go back and read the text of Virgil, so that he wouldn't have to read it in, you know, the commentaries of Church Latin. So I mean, he right. was in a lot of ways the first ad fontes man. Pardon. Our lacuna, and, and the way he writes about him, and the and the character of Dante, um, the you know the well in in uh, at towards the end of Purgatorio, when uh, he he reaches the top of Mount Purgatory, and 
Beatrice shows up and he's amazed at the 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 coming of Beatrice and he looks around and Virgil's gone. And uh, just Dante's real grief because because Virgil can't be with him to to experience uh, the first taste of heavenly beauties. Um, I don't know. I think I think that's a good attitude for for a Christian who is interested in the humanities and who is interested in, you know, the interested in those human things to look back at the thinkers who, who seem so close and to, you know, to weep for them that they couldn't be here. They couldn't be here with us to see, um, to see the first taste of heaven. Of course, he's not missing much in, in Dante's Paradiso. I mean, uh, yeah, oh, all, the, I all the fun stuffs, all the fun stuffs in the first two books. Well, anyway, David, I mean, just for a couple minutes, go ahead and talk about Petrarch as the other sort of forerunner. I realize yeah. we could we could talk all day about Dante, and perhaps we should, but go ahead and talk about Petrarch for a moment. Mm. Well, let's see. Petrarch, I think, is 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 actually still even uh, more visible in our culture now than than Virgil is. Um, but it's uh, because Petrarch focused on something that's still, uh, well, still still with us and popular, namely um, the idealizing of the of the romantic object in in love. Uh, Petrarch had his his Laura, this this beautiful woman that he saw, and in his poetry turned into basically the the ideal woman for whom he uh well basically languished in unrequited love but uh somehow that that languishing um produces the poetry so that um you know in in, in some in some magical way suffering in love actually helps you be more artistic so he was basically emo um <laughs> Or Platonist, depending on how you spin him. <laughs> I do like that you associated the word Platonist with it, though. Um, it it kind of gave it shook up my thinking. It gave me a new way to think about it, because he does treat her as this this ideal and perfect woman, as if through Laura he has access to the wonderful womanness. Um, now the 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 funny thing, at, at least to me was to see the way that ideal woman, particularly uh, the way she's described physically uh, in Petrarch, the way that carried over into the British Renaissance and just sort of got taken, you know, taken whole so that when you, you're looking at uh, English sonneteers writing in the Petrarchan tradition, the, they're just, the, the woman ends up looking like Laura. With right, the exception right. of things like Shakespeare's sort of anti-Petrarchan sonnet, in which, mm -hmm. you know, well, if her hair be, uh, if her hair be wire, then well, they're black wires, and right, her, right. you know, her skin is nothing like snow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, well, you're right that that that's still around uh, in in popular culture today. I mean, I think feminism dealt a big blow to that sort of. Uh, your 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 ideal womanhood rather than an individual woman but you still hear it in pop songs and uh, for whatever reason i'm thinking of air supplies uh you're every woman in the world to me but that song's 30 years old and incredibly lame <laughs> so but 
I'm sure there's more current hipper examples, <laughs> but it, it's definitely still around even after feminism quite rightly objected to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and David, the reason I, mean, I said, uh, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I, well, I, was, uh, I was about to say, um, I mean, what do you want to add to that? Because clearly you had something oh, the, you thinking. Yeah, the, the reason I said Platonizing is because I recognize in Petrarch that tension between beholding the beautiful body but not indulging in carnal pleasure that you see in Plato's Phaedrus. And I see that as, you know, uh, uh, yeah, translated. Okay, so the, 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 the platonic love. Yeah, yeah, except it's a beautiful girl instead of a beautiful boy in this case. Right, right. I, I, and I, I thought it was interesting putting Laura, kind of putting Laura in the same, uh, or at least comparing her to Beatrice. Because um, uh-huh. it seems to to look at Beatrice similarly, um, but uh, perhaps as a route to a different kind of beauty. Right, right. It's worth noting the um, kind of real-life women who became Laura and Beatrice were, as far as I know, Dante never really met Beatrice. He saw her at a party, and then she died. And, yeah. and <laughs> Petrarch, I believe, was the same. I mean, the, the, one, one of the reasons that these real-life women became the form of ideal womanhood is because Dante and Petrarch had no other content to put in into that vessel. Right, that makes right. sense. Well, and I, I, I don't know. I've I've said this before, but this is it, it, it's a very sort of romantic junior high way to fall in love. To <laughs> you know, sort of get a crush on someone that you don't talk to, but in your mind, invest them with all the wonderful things that you think should be in the person that you would love. Yeah, right. junior high, I never did that in college or anything like that. I never. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that ended in junior high. Well, it ended for me in junior uh, high. Because well. junior high was the point at which uh, I had a crush on a girl right up to the point where I actually talked to her, and I'd never heard her speak before. Wow. And her, oh, voice, and her voice was so grating. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> but but you're right, Grubs. If you if you had a student come to you and talk to you about this girl he was in love with who he'd never talked to, but she was the ideal woman for him, you would slap him and tell him to to grow up a little, son. You, you know, you'd tell him to, uh, to 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 get with reality. And yet, you know, you turn around and teach La Vida Nuova or the uh, or Petrarch sonnets, and you know. Well. I, I don't know. I feel like I spend half the time when I'm talking about sonnets to my classes uh, saying, and we realize that this is not always a great attitude to have in a real relationship, right? <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they all do, too. Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, if, if, they, if they didn't come into the class, hopefully they leave it with that. All right. Well, Michael, you know that many of our listeners will know that Renaissance Rebirth, and they'll have some memory of a teacher somewhere telling them what exactly is being reborn in the 14th century in Italy. Uh, you can use this Dante and Petrarch material, if you will, or you can go other directions. But uh, who starts using this term Renaissance, and when do they start doing it? Uh, and in the moment, what did folks see as being reborn? Well, I mean, the immediate meaning of that, as you say, is rebirth. And, and in this case specifically, they're talking about the rebirth of those classical sources, especially the ones that are coming out of Greece and Rome. 
So the idea here, and I, uh, D David can tell me if this is fair or not, but the, the ancient world, the, the pagan ancient world, had been, at least to a certain degree, de-emphasized in the Middle Ages. And so at the point when people start learning ancient Greek and ancient Latin again, and, and they start reading Seneca and Cicero in the original languages, which is, I mean, the language they're reading in it is very, very important. At that point, that's where you date the beginning of the Renaissance, too. And, and Petrarch, as you mentioned, Petrarch and Dante are two of the very first to do that um mm. it's also worth noting that the same approach is what led to the reformation in uh you know northern northern europe uh it didn't happen so much in italy but in, in northern europe that same <laughs> let's let's read in the original languages ancient manuscripts brings about the reformation so uh, i mean really those are those are two sides of the same movement it, I also think it's I also think it's interesting that the what we're calling the Renaissance here is by no means the first or only Renaissance, even even using that definition, because there was right. a s much smaller, lesser known Renaissance in the 12th century where people also went back and read, especially science texts in the in the <clears throat> original. Um, mm -hmm. But I really think the when we think of the Renaissance, we're probably thinking of it today as opposed to this concept of the dark ages which is a term petrarch i believe uses for the first time and and he uses it in order to demonstrate the superiority of the age he's living in which is why uh, why my eyes eyebrows went up when when D david when you said that he was continuing the medieval courtly tradition because i think uh -huh. he would be horrified by that um and that that term dark ages was coined by Petrarch, but really when you hear people use it now, they're probably following in the footsteps of this guy, Andrew Dixon White, who was the president of Cornell University in the late 19th century. And he, he, he went around using the term dark ages in order to demonstrate how religion supposedly held back cultural and especially scientific progress. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Now we know, we know that's not true. We, we know that the, that the Renaissance is not, 180 degrees from the quote-unquote dark ages that the quote-unquote dark ages were actually a time of immense cultural progress so we have a medievalist with us and there wasn't a question like this on the thing so david can you tell me why why the renaissance might not have been as groundbreaking as uh, as we've been led to believe well uh, the renaissance had a different uh, as, as i think I, I i tried to hint at this at dante that the christian middle ages interacted with the classical sources they had access to um after the you know east and west kind of were 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 parted and then when you have the uh, the rise of islam and the levant um western christendom got cut off from uh, got its access cut off uh from from the east which is where greek learning had been preserved so but the christian um, Middle Ages worked with uh, Romans, uh, the, the the Roman stuff, as uh, as much as they could, and and loved it um, after their fashion. But their project was different. Their project was not uh, Dante's project. It was to uh, you know for, to to look at uh, these kind of. A, La, you know, take a take a la, the story of the Trojan War, and to translate it into their own cultural terms. So you have, uh, you know, Chaucer's uh, uh, Troilus and Crusade, um, 
uh, or you have, you know, the Troy book. Uh, in fact, you know, Middle English writers uh, in England were they were obsessed with the Trojan War. Um, they're not shunning the classical. Um, they're availing of themselves of, of as much of it as assimilating it into their own culture. They're not trying to get back to <laughs> um, get back to the re the original as much as they are trying to bring uh, bring the classical uh, into harmony with uh, the the present, which is a a, a Christian. Uh, feudal um, culture. So, I mean, they, you know, I, I, I think it's more of a what was there more of a more of an attitude thing than a than an on-off switch. It's not dark and light. It's more of a hey, we're going to try to do sort of these medieval classical mashups versus hey, let's just go back to straight classical and get rid of the medieval. As if you could do that. Well, they couldn't. They couldn't. I mean, the, I mean the, as the, you mentioned about Petrarch, he's he's yeah. following in this line of um, of courtly love poets, and and yeah. there's not much he can do about it. Well, the the medieval is or the Renaissance is as post medieval as the postmodern is. Well, postmodern. I see. You know, <laughs> um, nice. It, it's it's a it's a reaction that doesn't actually manage to strip all the DNA out. Well, because you can't sense. ring a you can't unring a bell. Yeah. I mean, once the Middle Ages have happened, we're all the products of the Middle Ages, whether we want to be or not. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. my my point is, most of us have been sold a bill of goods about the medieval era. Um, mm -hmm. In order to make the Renaissance look even better than it was. Well, sure, and you know, as you already noted, Michael, I mean, that did not start with later historians. That really started with Petrarch himself. I, which I was surprised mm -hmm. to learn, because I always heard Andrew Dixon White coin the term Dark Ages. I was really... Oh, okay. I was really surprised how far back that term went. Literally mm -hmm. as far back as it possibly could. Mm -hmm. Right, the, right. The first person who could have <laughs> called him the Dark Ages called him the Dark Ages. <laughs> <laughs> so they they just had bad press really from the beginning. They, so so that term has been making medievalists angry uh, as long as it as long as it possibly could. Nice. If you ever well, want to get a well, medievalist to slap you, by the way, that's the term to use. I don't get angry anymore. When I hear that, <laughs> I, I actually think how sad that how sad that you think that. After after David's fifteenth assault charge against the student, he uh, he yeah. finally stopped getting angry. <laughs> no dark ages. Ho ho ho. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, David. I mean, we would be entirely remiss to neglect the visual arts when we talk about the Renaissance. But you know, we're I'm going to give you another comprehensive exam question here. <laughs> uh, and just realize that we are going to give short shrift to some great ones. Uh, let's just go around the horn, guys. David, you go first. Uh, talk about one or two of the great moments in sculpture, painting, uh, maybe even architecture, but the visual arts in this period. Right. Yeah, so this is a comprehensive exam question for yeah. <laughs> a reading list that I didn't read. Yeah. Um, Have you ever taken an art history class, David? Uh, nope. Never. Yeah, ever. me neither. <laughs> 
but uh, I've always been interested in art. Um, and when I was younger, uh, fancied myself an artist. And so uh, I learned fairly, uh, fairly soon in middle school uh, about one of the great inventions of Renaissance art, uh, which is something you, by definition, cannot see in a picture. Um, I'm talking about the vanishing point. Um, mm. uh, Leonardo da Vinci and, and uh, Donatello, uh, at least you know from from what I've read, are the first ones to observe that there is a mathematical regularity in the sense of depth that uh, the human eye sees, and that there's a way to replicate that sense of depth in visual art by imagining the point um, in this flat two-dimensional picture and having the uh, the lines of the picture converge to meet that point to create this artificial sense of depth that that matches the uh, the the mathematical regularity that that we see with our own with our own eyes from our own point of view. Um, this was not something that you saw in medieval art. There were attempts at depth, but you might have, um, you know, this knight standing there talking to some woman who was weirdly as tall as his horse and there's a castle that <laughs> seems to be like right next to him but it's as high as his shoulder you know um right and and th this you know this this weird kind of well all all the elements are in the picture right but the but relationships all right between them <laughs> don't appear as they would to the human eye and the vanishing uh, point isn't something you would ever have to think right, of it being right. invented you know what I mean? Well, coming in yeah, the age but, we do, but, it's like, how could you not draw a vanishing point? <laughs> well, but but if you think about it, if you look at at art across cultures, across time, um, I don't see any other visual art that makes use of it. Um, but I think it's because the, in one way, the Renaissance did have a radical shift of perspective, which was to assume the human perspective, the perspective of the human individual is the reality that we want to preserve in our visual art. Yeah, right. Whereas um, in other cultures and in other periods, the reality that's meant to be represented by the art is not simply what is seen through one person's eyes. Right, well, you right. Look at, you look at like Byzantine icons – and and the way that those mm -hmm. are so much less about what they look like, although that's important, and more about the symbolism and the colors and the and the the shape of the lines. It's right. obviously they're not even trying to make Christ look like Christ actually looked. They're trying to make a point about his divinity by the way he looks. Right. Right. And uh, I I've read I've not had this confirmed by someone who's actually studied Byzantine art. But I've read that in icons, there's almost a reverse perspective effect, as if there is a vanishing point that is located in the viewer, and the lines with the lines of the of the picture converging towards the viewer, as if the picture is looking at you. It makes and sense. The, you, the, you see that in like the pantocrator, right? Right. So, so that um, you know, so that this other, you know, the visual art of. Um, well, at least of, of of the Christian East, and I and I would argue of the Christian Middle Ages as well, it inter is interested in pr 
producing a reality, a representing a reality, but it's not the reality of the individual human's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, that 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 was, you know, the All one right, thing Michael. that I could come up with. <laughs> All right. Michael, won't you take a stab at it? I'm going to expand on that a, a little bit, and I, I didn't realize this question was going to be directed at me, so I uh, I frantically came up with something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but this this blew my mind when I learned about it in uh, the Western culture class I took. Uh, Michelangelo's David, which ah. is which is something I, th- I I think most of us kind of instinctively assume is a sculpture that is of King David as a boy. At least that's what I always assumed. It's probably what I was always told. You know, it's an old uh, it's an old sculpture, so it might, must be religious. Um, I, I've never I've never seen it in real life. I hear it's just uh, un- unbelievably beautiful. But um, that sculpture is of it, it can't possibly be of King David because it's not circumcised. So I think one important thing, huh. yeah. One and you know Michelangelo would have known that, but one one important thing one important thing that's happening with that art is it's taking art that on the surface looks religious and it looks Christian and it can be spun into into being Christian, and it's taking it away from the the realm of the immediately sacred. Hmm. Well, and the, and the anatomy studies. You know, that's true. Yeah. You know, there's right. there's there's nothing, you know, really of the iconography. Of King David. I mean, if you look at medieval iconography, there are two naked people, with the exception of, you know, maybe Saint Sebastian. Adam and Eve. Well, Adam and Eve are two naked men, Adam and Christ. Hmm. Okay. Um, and then when you hit the Renaissance, everybody naked. I, you know, I don't know what to make about it. It's just an observation. And they're all weirdly muscular, at least Michelangelo's people. Well, I mean, part right. of it is a return to pederasty. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, don't know of a, I don't know of a nicer way to say it. When you're, when you're imitating the culture of ancient Greece, this is going to be part of it. Right. Uh, so, I mean, th- that's that's part of, of why there's so many naked men in the, in the Renaissance. Another part is is they suddenly became able to draw the human figure realistically. And mm-hmm. and so when you first discover that, I imagine that's one of the first things you want to do. You want to you want to get this is what the human being looks like at his, you know, most uh, natural natural. There's a, <laughs> there's a good word for it. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, if you look at Leonardo, um, at his sketchbooks, just how, how obsessed he is with anatomy. Right. And with the, uh, the physical particularities of the human form, um, not even attempting to represent them in this, you know, kind of w- with an artistic goal in mind. They're still beautiful pictures, but you, but you can see him just obsessed with drawing precisely what he sees and like the structure of the veins that he sees after he pulls the skin aside you know mm-hmm. it it's it's a, a, a amazing stuff well i mean it and it ended up where, where painting became so realistic that it looked like real life and then you know the camera comes along and all of a sudden that painting is not as not as interesting to people anymore and if you look at like some of the pop art from the '60s, it looks almost like Byzantine icons. Mm-hmm. Huh. They, they, I they, never they, thought about it that they, way. 
they've almost reversed it all the all the way all the way back to pre-Renaissance um, iconography. I mean, obviously, most of it's stripped of of religious content, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, when a camera <laughs> can do what you can do with oils for much cheaper and much more accurately, why are you going to keep trying to paint what you see? Right. Mm. You know that well, the apex has been reached. <laughs> and right. I have now said everything I know about the visual arts. <laughs> That's not well, true. I know I, Rembrandt is in his painting of the crucifixion. Well, I'm going to piggyback off of what Michael said. And, uh, you know, one of Michelangelo's sculptures, particularly that's impressive, is his sculpture of Moses. Uh, mm. And the first thing that you note about him is what Michael said. He is just incredibly muscular. Uh, he could have parted the Red Sea by flexing. You get the impression. <laughs> um, but what's also interesting about that is that he is not very similar to medieval representations of Moses. Uh, he has this gigantic beard. Uh, and one essay that I've read, and I couldn't track it down in show prep, but it's always fascinated me, proposed the possibility uh, that Michelangelo's model was not any prior representation of Moses, uh, but it was actually Dante's description of Cato of Utica from the beginning of Purgatorio. Hmm. Huh. And I mean, you know, it, it it's just a fascinating possibility because you think of Cato and Dante as the limit of human legislature, you know, Moses being the figure of the old covenant and, you know, just that meeting place. And, you know, I want it to be true, even if it's not <laughs> just because the, the convergence is so fascinating to me. Do you think that's why they cast Charlton Heston? So he'd look more um, like Michelangelo's Moses. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Frederick Beekner said they should have cast Soupy Sales. That uh, that that's what that's what Moses actually would have looked like, instead of this nice. big muscular goyim. Right, right. Well, and of course, you know, when the uh, 1998 animated movie Prince of Egypt came out, everyone kind of scratched their heads because, you know, the animated figure that Val Kilmer was doing the voice for obviously was not 80 years old either. So. Mm. You know, that's one of those things, for some reason, we don't want an aged Moses in the modern period. Which is really, really, really odd to me. And we don't sad. like old people in the modern era. Yeah. Well, I did, point granted. Unless yeah. you know they're sassy grandmas who know how to rap. <laughs> <laughs> I did see something interesting uh, the other day I, I, that uh, actually kind of merges a couple of... Uh, this question with a previous one, Nathan, which is uh, an article by some historical researcher or other who's arguing that the Mona Lisa is in, is uh, shaped around Petrarch. Ooh, uh, that's yeah, that, uh, and what he's talking about is not just the picture of of La Gioconda herself, but of mm -hmm. the background, that empty wasteland that's behind her. Okay. Where there are no people, and he's arguing that that what we see is this woman being put into the Petrarchan narrative, in which to not be with her is to be in the wasteland. Huh. All right. Anyway. All right. Who would have thought I, they'd find something new to say about Mona Lisa? <laughs> Do what? Who would have thought they would have found something new to say about the Mona Lisa? I know. Well, but then he started, you know, started trying to link particular, you know, features in the background with particular lines of particular sonnets, and I said, no, uh, 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 you pushed it too yeah. far. Yeah, you're, you're doing all right. 
<laughs> well, you gotta you gotta write twenty five pages, or else uh, else you can't get published. Oh, that's true. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Yeah, I was intrigued right up until that point. <laughs> well, well, Michael, uh, you know that I'm always intrigued with the material conditions that make a culture intelligible. I, I, I was the one who spent the entire Christian Rock episode talking about the existence of record stores. Um, <laughs> And and I want to talk a little bit about the Medici family in particular and the patronage system for the arts in general. You know, one of the things that, one of the accusations, I'll put it that way, that surfaces when people talk about the careers of rock bands and then artists in general uh, is that at some point they have sold out, uh, even though as far as I can tell, they're still making money selling the same concert tickets, holding the same copyrights, all that sort of thing. Obviously, that sort of accusation would sound different in a patronage system. And I, I just want you to talk a few minutes. I mean, what differences arise between the modern commercial model of paying artists and the patronage system of the Renaissance? Um, and, you know, would it make sense to say that Michelangelo at some point sold out or is that purely a commercial rock phenomenon? Hmm. Um, before I go into it, I should say that patronage is another thing that we associate with the Renaissance that actually comes from the Middle Ages. And okay. it actually goes all the way back to ancient Rome, but it was, from my understanding, more or less prominent in the Middle Ages. So this is not mm -hmm. this is not something that is either A, new, or B, left over from Rome. Although it is left over from Rome, it maintained itself throughout. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I should also say that much of the religious art in particular that we have from the Renaissance is the product of the patronage system. So if you like if you like the religious art from the Renaissance, you can thank the patrons because you wouldn't have it otherwise. Go out see Medici. Yep, and it's not. <laughs> thank you. And it's not all artists. Philosophers had patrons. Theologians, writers, um, the whole gang. Scientists had patrons. It was mm -hmm. a very widespread system, and it really wasn't until the advent of modern capitalism that the patronage system died off. They're trying, from time to time, you see attempts to bring it back, and I. I uh, Terry Taylor, who I talked about in the Christian Rock episode, his latest CD, if you paid an extra $75, he would write and record a personalized song for you. That's kind of the, a remnant of the patronage system, um, mm. but spread out democratically. Um, right. Well, and in, in some sense, I mean, the university MFA program is a form of patronage as well. That's true. You, you don't have to sell your story in, other, in order to make money as a creative writing department writer. But, I mean, the way it would work is, as, as you probably guess, a rich person would pay an artist either just to sustain him while he painted what he wanted, or more, um, more frequently, he would pay him to paint a particular work. So he would, um, well, he would request uh, a, a particular work. Um, and there would be varying degrees of editorial control. Obviously, we're talking about a big system over thousands of years. So any way you can imagine it working, it worked. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned the Medici family. They're, they're a ruling dynasty in Florence. Um, they're really kind of known for ruling brutally, <laughs> but they're really best remembered these days for the artwork they commission. They, the Medici are indirectly right. responsible for works by Brunelleschi, uh, Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo, and then some other people who didn't name Ninja Turtles, so I'd never heard of them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. I mean... the. The patronage system was a way to make an ugly ruling dynasty not so ugly. Mm, and, right. and in fact, I think of Ozymandias now, the, the poem by Shelley, because 
the Medici, for, for for all their brutality, they're 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 the ones who inspired Machiavelli's The Prince, for example, which I know we're going to talk about in a little while. For all their right. brutality and cruelty and ugliness, really, what we know them for today is the Mona Lisa and and you know the the Sistine Chapel. Although the Sistine Chapel would have been commissioned by the the Catholic Church, not the Medici, um, which kind of overlapped for a while there. That's true. That's <laughs> true. So I mean. Not, I'm not, not only saying, was it, I'm just saying. Not only was it a way for them to rehab their reputation at the time, it's it's a way for us to kind of look back and say, well, maybe they weren't all bad. Um, mm. cer- certainly the artwork they, they've commissioned have out, outlived a lot of their uh, policies and effects on the city. Now, the notion of selling out, I mentioned that modern capitalism killed the patronage system. I would say that the notion of selling out owes its existence to modern capitalism okay uh, I, I don't think that concept would have had much traction in the italian renaissance because in the italian renaissance artistic expression wasn't as connected with lack of success as it is sometimes today you guys make fun <laughs> of me for uh for, for some of my more obscure picks on that top 20 songs list but if i put <laughs> if i'd put nickelback on there people would have sneered a little bit because nickelback is is for the masses and thus you know can't be any good okay and and i mean you know i i don't have any historical framework i mean even to imagine what that would have looked like really but i thought that maybe there would have been a situation where if your patron was too high ranked then you might have lost some prestige but it was probably just the opposite in that renaissance setting that's exactly what it seems like i i couldn't find any evidence that they that's the best i can tell too so um i i really think it's the democratic impulse that makes selling out possible because well, the patronage system ensures that only one rich, cultured family really needs to understand you, and you're now successful. But to make it big in modern pop culture, you have to appeal to these unwashed masses that none of us like. So mm-hmm. snobbery, you know, like that just wouldn't have been in play yeah. well, during isn't the Renaissance. There a bit of the Romantic poet in there too. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, oh, uh, William Blake. You know who kind of eked his way through life on a pittance because he would only paint the things he wanted to paint, daggummit. And he would write the things he wanted okay. to write. <laughs> but what's, what's uh, you know, And what he capital- wrote was, was horribly obscure. <laughs> modern capitalism is coming of age at the same time the romantics are, really. Right. I right. mean, and the romantics, in, in many senses, are rejecting modern capitalism, especially Blake. Think of, think of uh, mm-hmm. his poem, London. Right, the right. Chimney sweep, but um, to a large degree, they they owe their kind of general outlook on life to capitalism and democracy, which often but not always go hand in hand. So, okay, I I, I don't know. I, I I think it's a it's very much a modern phenomenon. I think it's not a terribly viable uh, system of merit anyway. The the whole selling out thing. Most mm. people I know who are musicians would be happy to to make a lot of money playing for a lot of people. <laughs> well and i mean are there people out there accusing the beatles of selling out no but the beatles are the beatles are an interesting case and it's kind of the one people always bring up when you talk about selling out because the beatles mm. sold an enormous number of records but who can say that those later beatles records weren't exactly what they wanted to make it just happened mm-hmm. to be what people wanted to hear as well yeah. but you hear well, it with a band like rem 
it's hard for people my age maybe to remember that rem was once as underground as bands can be like Mm -hmm. michael stipe claims he didn't even know the lyrics on the first couple of rem records because he's just mumbling then all of a sudden they get signed (laughs) to warner brothers records you get the big drum sound you get the huge uh, arenas they're playing in you get every uh, everybody hurts playing on mtv every 45 minutes people call them sellouts now whether that's true or not i mean uh, i'm inclined to believe it isn't and even if it is, I don't know what it means. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's. I think I think that terminology is going to be around uh, around for a while. You're seeing okay. a backlash to it now. We're we're way off the subject of the Renaissance, though. I can I can talk. <laughs> we can talk about selling out in some other episode. Well, that's all right. That's all right. Um, well, we're getting back to the Renaissance then, and I'm going to come back to it on a silly note because it's kind of a an inside joke within our trio, but. One significant addition to the cultural ideals of Western culture uh, is when the knight errant and the abbot are waiting around as central literary figures, and they are joined by the courtier, the man of the court. Uh, and his distinction is that rather than heroism or valor or piety, uh, his signature mark is sprezzatura. Uh, we owe that to a particular book, The Courtier by Balthazar Castiglione. Uh, David, what is Sprezzatura, and why do I keep getting accused of having it? <laughs> you get keeping it. You keep getting accused of having it because in one episode you claimed it. Um, oh, true and enough. I re- <laughs> and I re- and I remember. Um, <laughs> I'm the elephant who doesn't forget. Um, well, the the funny thing is, if if you dig about in um, uh, uh, Castiglione's book of the courtier, which is uh, which is what this is from, um, he he coins the term sprezzatura, but for the most of the context of that discussion, the the particular character who who coins the term um, is talking about grace. How a courtier needs and everything that uh, that he or she, but primarily he does, everything must be done with grace. And they ask him to define, what do you mean by it? Well, he says, what, grace is the ability to do things well, do things excellently, but with apparently no effort. As if excellence comes as naturally to you as breathing. It's much yeah. easier in the days of uh, podcast editing, for example. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We are able to cultivate a certain kind of uh, broadcast sprezzatura because uh, Michael busily cuts out all the crappy bits. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully puts in all the one you know, only the ones worth, you know, you know, public attention. And because that's what our listeners hear, they assume that, you know, we're three brilliant guys who just sit around and have these uninterruptedly brilliant conversations. When in fact, <laughs> <laughs> it's not always the case. Uh, but I'm going to pull the veil back closed again because you're never supposed to see that audience. And that's what Spretzatier is about. Right. Um, well, which is why when Michael keeps mentioning the show notes, I always grit my teeth a little bit. It's like, Michael, no, 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 we don't have show notes. It's true. We we're getting more and more meta, aren't we? this flows out of the awesomeness that we simply are um but actually the 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 character whose name escapes me uh the book of the courtier is a is a a 
a record of a conversation. Um, it's presented as one that actually happened, but uh, Castiglione uh, says that I wasn't actually there to hear this conversation, but other people told me about it. So we're going to take that with a grain of salt. But um, apparently these Italian aristocrats of the Renaissance love to play conversation games, which would be here's a topic or here is a question, and now everybody has to weigh in on the topic or the question. And the game that they decide to play uh, for this conversation is what are the traits of an excellent courtier? And so the, the sprezzatura is presented as one of those traits or actually a governing kind of meta trait that in everything that a courtier does, it should be done in the manner uh, characterized by sprezzatura, which sprezzatura doesn't mean you work hard to get your skills. In fact, uh, like a busy bee, you try to find out uh, all of the all of the people who do the who do the skills you want to acquire the best, and you track down them and you learn everything you can from them. Right. But when you perform excellently yourself, you do not footnote all of your teachers. <laughs> you make it seem as if it just kind of arises out of you, like you know your own superpowers. <laughs> yeah. But. Uh, Anyway, it, it, it's this it's this interesting and I, I think you can see that, you know, it's certainly this tension is there in the fairy queen as well. In which, mm -hmm. um, you know, particularly uh, the fairy queen, which was written to to fashion a gentleman. Um, but then. And, and that that's a very a very sprezzatura kind of thing. I'm going to make someone into a perfect courtier. However. It should seem to it should seem as if it arises out of your character, um, you know, like holiness. Holiness shouldn't be an act that we cultivate, um, you know, that among, uh, you know, if, if no other virtue, you know, holiness should be something that, you know, you are not something that you simply kind of put on as a facade. We have a word for the people who do that, and it's hypocrite. But there's definitely this uneasy tension, I think, in Spencer. Uh, over the mm -hmm. the performing of of virtues. Anyway, it's 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 a fun concept, but uh, and I think I think Nathan's the best at it because he can <laughs> he can always say, well, Aristotle, um, <laughs> you know. The, uh, yeah, I am guilty of that. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, M Michael, if you want to chime in, that's fine. But if not, I would like to head towards the ending of the episode with a nod towards. American politics and your next episode, uh, which you'll introduce later, I'm sure, uh, with a little bit of talk about Machiavelli. Uh, and since most people who are familiar with him have only read his brief treatise, The Prince, uh, Old Nick, and yes, as far as I can tell, that's where that name for the devil got its origin, uh, has gotten a repu reputation for amorality, cynicism. Uh, but his other works, especially his discourses on Livy, I mean, they reveal a, a a political thinker who idealizes the Roman Republic uh, really as much as the American framers did. Um, Michael, whether for good or for ill, uh, where do you see Machiavelli's influence in modern American politics? And why is the Renaissance such a good moment for people to start t thinking about republics again? Well, I have not read those other books, so if you're going to have to cover those if you want them covered, but I can talk okay. about the prince. <laughs> All right. Uh, Machiavelli, it must be said, 
has a name um, that has become an insult, right? Uh, he is mm-hmm. positively Machiavellian. Sure. Mm-hmm. Where you get that Office episode where Dwight says, Yankee Swap is like Machiavelli meets Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Even though his name is a byword among the nations and apparently always has been, he has been immensely influential. The prince has been immensely in- influential in nearly every Western culture since Machiavelli wrote it. So I'm just going to give you a few names, and there's a bunch of other ones. These are people who openly claim influence from Machiavelli. Adam Smith, Francis Bacon, mm-hmm. Napoleon, mm-hmm. Uh, Stalin, Mussolini, John Gotti, a whole bunch of others, and then some that you know, maybe don't have names that make us cringe. No offense to Francis Bacon. Hey. Uh, <laughs> my wife's a Shakespearean, so I have to hate Francis Bacon. Who, who, as we all know, actually wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. I love Frankie. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. anyway uh, very few Democratic leaders will claim influence from the prince for, I think, very obvious reasons. Right. Although uh, Richard Nixon is an exception to that. And I'm going to talk about Nixon in just a minute. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go that's ahead. A, that's okay. Uh, but but he, I, I think his ideas are nevertheless influential. For example, Machiavelli is of the opinion that people are essentially unsavory brutes and that politicians are better than them. And I, I, I think most politicians, if you really pushed them to the wall, would admit that that's true. Otherwise, why would they want to govern us? <laughs> Now, I don't disagree that most people are unsavory brutes. Um, I, I, I'm not sure our politicians are much better. Um, yeah. Another thing we see, and, and this is where Nixon comes in, uh, Machiavelli insists in The Prince that when you're fighting wars, you should just destroy cities in order to gain control of the region they're in. And I, you see that very clearly in Vietnam. Uh, Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, is is very very often called a Machiavellian for that very reason, and of course Nixon was uh, in in bed, so to speak, with Kissinger. Um, outside of politics, I think you see a Machiavellian ruthlessness in, in a lot of businessmen, and certainly that's the cliche of the of the businessmen, the, the hostile takeover and whatnot. This it's better to be feared than to be loved. Uh, let's be realistic. Let's not let's not worry about what what could be. Let's let's worry about what what actually can happen. That can lead to a certain ruthlessness, and I I really think you see that in the business world. I'm not sure anybody's going to disagree with me after the uh, after the events of the last few years. I should also point out, and you guys can tell me what you think about this theory. I'm sure you've heard it. the The new theory is that the prince might have been satire. I don't know that much about that theory. I don't. Yeah, know that, that's actually a fairly old theory. Oh, see see what I know. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Oh my bad, my bad. Whether it's a well, satire, no, whether it's a satire or not, the actual ideas put forth in the Prince, the the realpolitik, all of that stuff has been immensely influential, covertly, and nobody will admit it. But most people in power have a little bit of Machiavelli in them. Right now, the the theory that the Prince is actually a satire work, as far as I can tell, goes far at least as goes back at least as far as the Italian communist Gramsci. Uh, who wrote a treatise arguing that the prince was trying to present the autocratic dictator in such unsavory terms that any educated person who read it would immediately want to establish a more democratic, communistic sort of government. (laughs) Uh, It certainly did not succeed. I guess the joke's on him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you can see how Italian communism's doing these days. (laughs) 
But but at any rate, David, are you familiar at all with the discourses on Livy? Oh no no no. <laughs> okay, well let, let, let me talk for just a minute about that, and then we'll kind of head for the wrap up of the show. But uh, it is a much longer work than the Prince. Uh, the prose is more difficult, but it is really fascinating. Uh, first of all, the subject matter that he takes. Livy, of course, is a Roman historian, and among ancient historians, seems as far as I can tell, much less interested in the gods and much more interested in religion than a lot of his contemporaries. Uh, In other words, he's not really concerned about what the gods think about this or that, but he is very, very interested in the ways that senators and consuls and emperors take the practices of religion to bend the wills of the people. Uh, And of course, that shows up in a very crass form in The Prince, uh, but in the discourses, you get something that really looks more like what you see in John Locke or even Tom Jefferson, uh, where you want to have the people happy, then you let them practice the religion as they see fit within the bounds set by the state. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a, a very, very sophisticated theory of religion and the state, which, I mean, as far as I can tell, there are a few people who have written about religion and the state in a more acute manner than Machiavelli did. So, I mean, that that mm. book is one that I'll definitely recommend to our listeners. It is a chore to get through, uh, but it is, I mean, like I said, just one of the best appropriations of that Roman culture for the sake of modern statecraft that I've ever read. And well, anyway, I mean, guys, as we learned on Entitled Opinions last week, the uh, early Americans loved the Romans. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I, I can definitely see, even if they didn't read Machiavelli on Livy, I can certainly imagine Ben Franklin, Tom Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander reading Hamilton Livy. reading Livy. Because, yeah. I mean, his theory of how religion affects the Roman Empire, I mean, gets translated almost word for word into Article 6 of the Constitution, into the First Amendment, so on and so forth. So, definitely go check mm-hmm. that out, listeners. Well, anyway, guys, to wrap things up, um, the Italian Renaissance, it's a gigantic topic. Uh, it's something that probably deserves multiple episodes of a podcast, certainly doesn't deserve to be ignored. Uh, but <laughs> for fear that I've left out someone extremely important, I want to go around the horn, starting with David. Uh, tell us about one person we've left out of today's podcast who we shouldn't have, why we shouldn't have left it out, and then hand it off. Uh, well, Boccaccio, um, in the 1300s, uh, he's a contemporary of Petrarch. He's a poet, um, most famous for, uh, he wrote several works, but the, uh, the one that most people will have heard of or will ever hear about is the Decameron, which is a, uh, a series of tales told within a frame narrative in which, uh, characters have a storytelling contest. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it's because you also heard it as uh, well. That's basically the structure of the of the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> so, uh, Chaucer loved him, so Boccaccio. Lots of people have loved him, so Boccaccio. Um, Wait, and... how did? Hmm. Boccaccio comes before Chaucer. I thought it was the other way around. Oh yeah, nope. David. Do you have C.S. Lewis's line on your on the tip of your tongue? I do not. Sorry. Oh okay okay I. 
I, I just remember reading this and I just thought C.S. Lewis must have had a terrible chuckle at himself. He referred to uh, Chaucer as a medievalized version of an Italian Renaissance tale. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think a lot of people are surprised by that because they think of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance being separate things. But actually, Boccaccio came in the Italian Renaissance, came before Chaucer, who we think of as medieval. Um, right. And, I hope and all Char- our listeners will learn something from my stupidity. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it's not it's not stupidity. It's the fact that we don't learn we don't learn about those those two different figures in the same class and on the same timeline. Right. It's similar to the way that people think of the Roman Republic as coming after the Greek democracy. Yeah. When in fact they were concurrent. You'd be surprised how early Rome comes along actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but Boccaccio, um, he, he's, he's famous for, well, a number of things. Part of well, one of, one of them being the 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 naughty stories in the Decameron. Um, <laughs> many of those are not uh, uh, safe for family viewing, as it were. Um, but uh, he takes an interest in people who are not uh, nobility, princes, and kings, and bishops, and so forth. Uh, he takes an, an an interest in in other classes of people and in lives that uh, to us seem ordinary, and uh, depicts those characters with a, a a sense of realism, which in English literature um, we trace back to Chaucer. Well, Chaucer kind of borrowed it. Not that he wasn't a genius, but someone got there first, and we know Chaucer read that guy. <laughs> so, anyway, Boccaccio. Michael, I second Boccaccio, who's just a, uh, <laughs> a, a a big lot of fun, and uh, the the body stuff is is fun if you're uh, old enough to read it. And, uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I can say anything about it. Grubsy didn't already say, except uh, except I had no idea he was before Chaucer. Well, if I were going to single out someone that I wish I could have put in, but I didn't, it would be Giovanni Pico de Mirandola. Uh, Ooh, he was yeah. an Italian humanist. And his treatise on the dignity of humanity is just one of the great texts of Italian humanism. It's mm-hmm. one that you can't borrow from uncritically because you get into all kinds of strange places if you do. Well, uh, I mean, but yeah, it's one of the reasons but, why he got condemned as a heretic. So, <laughs> well, yeah, but his central idea, uh, if you're allowed to take it allegorically, can be really powerful ethically. His central idea is that. Humanity does not have a static nature as beasts do or as angels do, but rather has a fluid essence uh, that, based on the course of life that we take, can ascend towards the angels or can descend towards the beast. Uh, It's a very platonic image. It's one that Boethius, of course, picked up in Consolation of Philosophy. Uh, But Pico de Mirandola does it with such style and with such beautiful language that it is hard to deny the power of the idea as i said you've got to read it critically i prefer to read it allegorically but it's still wonderful stuff it sounds it sounds lovely i've not i've not uh heard of that person but i'm actually having my uh upper division english majors read it at the end of the semester so and giordano be good bruno. go uh, ahead and giordano bruno who's uh come comes he died in 1600 so he was a bit later 
but he's he's right. kind of in that same strain of trying to push the edge of what is human um and well it it, it pushed him further than uh the pope was really comfortable with too but right um, <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh well anyway right, guys definitely I'm, a couple I'm of really at... interesting guys to meet Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the clock. We are definitely out of time. So I want to say thank you to Michael and to David. Uh, I want to remind you listeners that our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our web address is christianhumanist.org slash chb for blog or christianhumanist.org slash chp for the podcast. Uh, If you are on iTunes, we ask you again, give us a rating we prefer five stars or write us a review <laughs> that helps us get out to more people who might be interested in this sort of thing. Next episode, Michael, what is our topic? Nationalism. We're talking about uh, what Nathan Gilmore has elsewhere called the most important force of the 20th century. I mean, obviously, it continues into the 21st century. So we're going to trace nationalism from its roots in, uh, well, in the, in the Old Testament, in, in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Follow it up through the Nazis, follow it through 9-11, and uh, well into the future. Yay. All right. Well, you know where to find us next week. Uh, Until then, this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.